Greetings and salutations. My name is Tyler Illinick, and this is Raven Drool, the podcast that chronicles all things 90s can rock. In this episode, I speak with Todd Kearns, the front man of Lanigan, Saskatchewan's The Age of Electric. So, Saskatchewan in 1989. Um, <laughs> break that down for us, man. What was that like musically? Saskatchewan in 1989. You know, the funny thing about it is, you know, in my in my uh, memories, like going back, it's really bizarre to consider a musical scene based on the world that we grew up in because all we knew about was when I started playing music as a kid, it was immediately into playing high school dances and you know, playing top 40 music, um, the music of the day. And that just kind of spun into the bars, like all the, the bar scene and all that was all built on uh, a lot of cover bands and, and basically the same idea, top 40 acts. And we sort of in, by 1989, I'd already been sort of running around doing that kind of stuff. By the time we put the age of electric together, we, we had sort of cultivated the idea of doing our own music, but, still working within this this world where you could kind of get paid to play music and you would go from week to week from town to town and we financed our entire career that way um just by being paid to play music and i sort of look at it all you know as the uh the hamburg phase of the beatles where they went down to germany and played um, six nights a week and got, you know, just, they just, how they cut their teeth, become comfortable on stage. You become really comfortable with playing in front of an audience. And it's really, you know, to this day has served me well because getting up and playing in front of people is never an issue. So while a lot of our friends were sort of sitting in basements, kind of writing songs and getting ready for the perfect, uh, showcase, we were already out there, you know, doing our thing and, for better or worse, it was sort of, you know, how we did it and turned it into uh, a career, you know, what I mean? <laughs> essentially. So you mentioned playing top 40 covers and whatnot. Did you have to balance trying to work in original material and what were like the club owners or whoever booking you kind of idea? We want you to play Glass Tiger covers or Loverboy and then, but you want to, <laughs> you want to play your own material as well. Did you slip one in every five songs? How, how did that work? Yeah, we just started slipping them in, you know, and I, I mean, the, back in those days, there were certain clubs that you'd play three 50 minute sets. There were other clubs where you would play four 40 minute sets. And sometimes they would have a 20 minute tag, depending on how much time you were trying to kind of stretch the show. It's fascinating to me now when I go back to Canada and I run across the prairies to consider that this was just a, 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 a system that was all put in place long before I ever started playing music, um, like bands like Street Heart or Orphan or you know the Queen City Kids, all those bands all played in that in that world. Um, you know, but we the Age of Electric got to a point where we pretty much were playing three sets of all original music or predominantly original music. We played cover songs, but by that point we were playing songs that we enjoyed playing. It wasn't really about playing top forty music or anything like that. In the early days, in the earlier bands I was in, there wasn't really a whole lot of focus on original music, even though I was always sort of um, gung-ho to 
you know, go that route. It just sort of more went the way of, you know, girls like to dance to this song or you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever reasoning there was for said song to be played. And uh, like I said, it was just was it was really good practice for us to all be on stage. It was actually really good practice as songwriters, too, because you're playing so many songs that you actually respect and enjoy that you can't help but be sort of dissecting. It goes, you know, intro, verse, pre-chorus, chorus, re-intro, verse, second chorus, bridge, perhaps, solo. <laughs> you, know, you would just kind of would have this sort of weird, these patterns would sort of start to form. Yeah, that's interesting. You're able to break it down from some of the masters, right? Some of the guys who actually wrote a hit song and sold exactly. records. Exactly. If you're sitting there learning Beatles songs or Rolling Stones songs, you start to kind of learn, oh, okay, this, you know, this makes sense, you know, and then when you start doing it yourself, um, you can kind of make sense of that. So, uh, largely it was, it, I look at that all as sort of school, you know what I mean? Like it was all sort of, that was our training in a sense to, prepare us for what was to come speaking of how did you transition to making your first ep i mean you guys made you guys released a few independent stuff before you actually signed you know released the big stuff that people know about on god's yeah. teeth ethel how did speaking of actually stop right there god's teeth ethel i've always wanted to know how did the name come to be <laughs> my grandmother's name is ethel and that was a uh, uh god's teeth i guess was my grandfather's you know I guess he was, you know, God damn it, I guess, but it was kind of like, God's teeth, Ethel. You know, he'd say something like, you know, God's teeth, Ethel, these kids are being too loud or whatever, you know. We always thought that was really funny. And I remember Kurt Dahl, I mean, Kurt and I met, That you have to kind of rewind all of this in a funny way because I played in a band called The Infants from my small hometown of Lanning in Saskatchewan, 1,500 people. It's on the, uh, it's on the number one up there. And we... We had a three-piece band. I was the bass player singer, and we sort of toured around, and and we were just basically friends from, you know, from, from our hometown. And at the very end of the band, Kurt Dahl ended up being, ended up being uh, a roadie for us in a sense. Not a roadie. But that's the wrong word for it. He ended up being a... Uh, a friend who helps you. Basically, yeah. He ended up being... Uh, we we had a sound guy who left us and a, and a lighting guy who left. Everybody was growing up and going to school, basically, is what was happening. <laughs> we were all kids, and guys were kind of like out on the road with us making racket together. And then eventually we got ourselves to a point where we were like, hey, you know what? Maybe we could do, you know, do this for a living. And then other guys would be kind of like, you know, or not even a living. I, I honestly, I don't remember even having like a, a an actual thought about like, anything i was just having the time of my life i'm playing music i'm i'm 17 18 years old you know rolling around in a van and and just having a blast and then other guys were who were all older than me were kind of like they'd had enough and they were moving on and they had girlfriends and you know prepared to have lives for themselves and that's when kurt Dahl came in it was sort of like look we need we need someone to to do sound and 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 you know kurt came in and he was just a guy that i'd met at the clubs he'd come see us play and he was, uh, when we were really fast friends, um, I was considerably younger than all the other guys in the band. So Kurt and I were this basically two months apart. Um, it's his birthday today, coincidentally, oh, no which way. is really, which is really funny. And we, you know, we sort of just became fast friends and he was a drummer and he had a brother who played guitar and my little brother had, had started playing bass 
and I was also a guitar player. So it took us still a few years before we ever kind of like pulled the trigger on that because the, the younger brothers were both in high school still. Mm. And um, when that came up, it was sort of like when it finally happened, it was kind of like, hey, we should do this. That'd be fun, you know. And uh, Kurt and I both went off in different directions. He went more Winnipeg way and I went more uh, Alberta way and played in bands and had all these experiences and then came back together. Uh, as far as the EP goes and all that, we um, it's actually my, another funny story because my father was shopping. He went down to buy guitar strings because he played guitar as well at uh, a music shop in Saskatoon. And uh, there was just a contest, you know, like a like a weird contest to win recording time at hmm. Studio Pike Lake where Northern Pikes would record and, you know, Vancouver or uh, not Vancouver, but uh, Saskatchewan bands. Real nice facility, actually, just up at this like lake community. And um, he won it, which was bizarre. <laughs> so he doesn't have anything to record. So he goes, I want this thing. You guys want to come and record? And we're like, hell yeah. And we just came back and we spent, I don't know how long, but we, we did an EP of five songs. And that was the electric EP. We were still called electric at that time. And, uh, yeah. So, and I remember it was funny cause at the time, uh, I remember having a conversation with this other band's manager I said, yeah, we're going to go back and record our songs. And he's like, why? I was going like, well, we're going to, I think we're going to make some cassette tapes and, I don't know, sell them. You know, <laughs> and he was like, why would you do that? It was a very interesting conversation because the guy was very sort of like, you're competing with Billy Joel. And I don't know why Billy Joel was the one he grabbed for, but, <laughs> you know, like major artists. And I was kind of like, I don't know. This is what you do. You write music and you try to get people to, to, to dig it, you know? And so we did that. We just recorded these five songs and we just sort of did the same thing. We just sort of went back to our playing shows and touring constantly and, we just happen to have T-shirts and uh, cassette tapes to sell now. And then from there, we went to uh, eventually decided to uh, to do it again. I mean, we, we ended up uh, doing a full record called a uh, full record, a full length cassette basically called The Latest Plague. And by that point, we had changed our name to The Age of Electric. So we had a video for a song called Aphrodisiac Smile that we shot and was which was a strange thing. There was a television, like a music television show out of Victoria, BC that shot a video for a band called Young Gun who are friends of ours from Vancouver. And we thought, well, let's get in on that because we want to have a music video. Wouldn't that be cool? Back when much music and MTV was still playing music videos. So we, um, we just, we made our way to Vancouver the weird thing with the Age of Electric is we had the audacity before even going to Vancouver or even Toronto. We had already been to Hollywood. We'd already gone to Hollywood <laughs> and like handed out flyers. Come to our show. You know, we happen to have friends through friends. We ended up doing a, a show with a band called Anna Black. Anna Black, I think they were called. Oh, I should know that. Anna Black. And they were from Canada. They were originally from Toronto, but they were living in L.A. doing the Sunset Strip thing and around, I guess, around 89, 90. I can't remember exactly when it was, but maybe 91. It's hard to really remember. Right, right. And then, um, uh, and then we did a, uh, the Whiskey Go Go with the Zeros. So, so we had gone down there and thought, well, that, this is what you do. You know, the, the audacity to just think, let's just load up the van and drive down to LA and and play. And we we did that sort of stuff all the time. And not just play, but but play Sunset and the Whiskey. At the, you know, not just play in LA. You know, at some club nobody's heard of. You're talking about legendary. 
club on the Sunset Street. Unbelievable. And the fact that I've played it numerous times since then and more and recently is is always bizarre to me. Like whenever I'm there, I'm like, I can't believe we did this. So yeah, no kidding. But then when the thing when the thing came up with Vancouver and all that, we sort of like, well, let's go to Vancouver and let's you know shoot this video. And it was our first trip, and it was the whole time everything is just sort of this ridiculous four guys from Saskatchewan just with the audacity, you know, just to kind of go like, well, why not? You know, like a lot of people had like a lot of. Uh, reasons to not do things and we were always kind of like we were making money playing music but we were also taking all that money and putting it back into the band we were making to record stuff or or, or whatever and just trying to like you know and to finance a trip to los angeles obviously and then we went to uh vancouver shot this video released we released the video to much music and during the course of all that we changed our name to the age of electric we just added Age of Electric, the Age of Electric, to the previous name Electric, and that was mostly based on the fact that we'd come across quite a few bands called Electric. Hmm. Um, we thought like, well, we should be the Electric something, Electric Guys, Electric, and then we just sort of tagged some words onto the front of it, and uh, yeah, and then that sort of like that kind of creates a bit of a division into where. It went because we'd started at this, at, as this club band and built a really great following for ourselves, especially in the prairies from Alberta to Winnipeg. We had built this huge following and then it was building into Vancouver and into Ontario. But as soon as the age of electric sort of we had shifted over to the age of electric, of course, you know, the music had changed. You know, the the it was went from being like we we weren't necessarily like a hard a heavy metal band. We loved rock and roll music. We grew up going like, you know, you grow your hair long, you wear leather pants, you wear your guitar <laughs> real low, you play real loud. That's rock and roll. And, um, you know, as we got older, things became more and more, you know, mature or refined. And we sort of found ourselves sort of living in this world where uh, the world was changing along with our own tastes, you know, like so that what was once motley crew was now jane's addiction and then you know and then everything sort of started to really shift as you of course were there you know the the 90s changed everything yeah, so absolutely. by that point we were we were sort of we were ourselves were adapting into a whole new thing as well
So back in those days, you mentioned getting your independent video played on Much Music. How did that exactly occur? Did you just send it in by mail? Do you guys knock on their door? I mean, how does one get an independent video played on Much Music at that time? I think at that time it was it it was a little bit of that. Like we had a we had um, a, distrib- a distribution company selling our our cassettes at that point. Cargo Records was like a like kind of a punk Montreal, rock. I think. Yeah, Mont- from Montreal. And, uh, you know, all those things kind of have, they add a little bit of weight behind things. So whoever probably handed it off or got it seen, um, luckily, you know, Canada is, is such that it's such a, uh, such a great, uh, support system for Canadian music. You know what I mean? Like that we have, uh, it was such a great place to make music because there was a good chance if it was of decent quality, you were going to get a get a leg up so they were and i wouldn't say necessarily much music was always looking for independent bands but we you know we'd made a video it was it was good quality and i think that they thought yeah sure it got thrown on the power hour first uh i don't know if you remember power of the heavy the Pepsi metal power hour absolutely. yeah the, the heavy metal show so we went down to toronto for our first time and did an interview in the basement with Teresa roncon she was hosting it back then. I love and Teresa Roncon. Fantastic. She was really good to us. She came to quite a few things of ours and was really supportive. Cool. So we went to, uh, you know, with the, so just with that, like anything else, the, the video getting played made a big difference. The funny thing was, I remember being in the Paw, Manitoba, <laughs> which is really <laughs> far up north. I used to live up there when I was a kid. We, My, my family lived in, in northern Manitoba for um a while before we moved back to saskatchewan and um we're in the paw manitoba it's like a relatively dreadful gig like we were there for probably maybe a week maybe four days i don't remember and it was just snow banks outside the hotel (laughs) and adjoining rooms with it felt like we were staying in like a mexican jail you know it was just like it just it just felt like all bad felt like midnight uh midnight express or something and I remember it was the week that Thursday, I think it was Thursdays, they would play much music, uh, much music would play the power hour. And it was this kind of thing of like, our video is going to be on, on the power hour on Thursday. And we didn't have any TVs in our hotel rooms. And it just so happened that the manager of the hotel or manager of the bar, I think had a room and he was like, Oh, you can come down to my room. So we went down and watched our video, uh, debut on, uh, the power hour, just, you know, we all gathered into this room together, watched it and it was kind of like, yay. And then all went back to our, you know, dreadful little cells <laughs> and then played to nobody that night or nobody who gave a shit anyway. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, it, and it's sort of, it's sort of very indicative of the entire, our entire career was met with, you know, things that were great milestones that were balanced by some sort of like, uh, like nothing good. <laughs> Funny thing was we had we had made the the five five song electric EP. We had um, a friend we 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 made friends with a a DJ in in one of the clubs we'd play and he was a DJ at uh, a, a college radio and he had a heavy metal show on a college radio station. So the very first time our music was ever played on air, which is a very similar uh, balancing act story of us all saying, you know, hey, we're going to be on the radio on Sunday night or whatever night it was. <laughs> so check us out tomorrow. And then the next day, <laughs> they played 
you know, were listening to the show and they played it. I recorded it on cassette. I wish I bet you I probably oh, have it. Amazing. Somewhere. Amazing. But uh, the, the song came on and and it played like like as if the, the cassette player was broken. So it was like speeding up and slowing oh, down no. and speeding up. And, and it, it just went on and on. And it wasn't like because it was a, a college radio show, I guess no one professional enough was there to kind of go like, whoops, <laughs> you know, and stop it. It just played for, I mean, the song was like five minutes long in its first incarnation. So it literally played for probably five and a half with all the slowing down. <laughs> so it literally, you know, it was like one of those bizarre um, things. I have so many stories of the Age of Electric like this where we later on, around 93, we made a video for Ugly that ended up being a, a pretty big hit for us. Yeah, that was my intro to you guys, absolutely, the Ugly EP in that video. So that was the carryover, and that's... So we, the same thing happened where we had shot this video and that, that's a whole other conversation. But basically I, I, I got to look at the final edit of that video. We were in Banff, Alberta. We were playing this club in Banff. By that point, we were pretty much an original band. Like we were sort of in this weird sort of cross period where the age of electric, the cover band or electric, the cover band was now a full original band called the age of electric. And but we would still get booked in these weird places. So we got booked in, in, in Banff, Alberta at a total, you know, like if you've ever been to Banff, it's like nonstop parties. They want to hear like, you know, like right now they'd be playing, you know, Bruno Mars and stuff like that. Right, the, right, the, right. the bands exactly. are playing the hits today. And we go on and play our stuff. And so we were booked for like a few nights. I can't remember what it was, but I remember we played the one night. The next day I looked at the, the final edit of the video, which would go on to be a, 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 a a moderate hit for us. And then that night we were, or then shortly after I looked at the video, it was like, they let us go from this gig in, <laughs> in, uh, in, uh, Banff. So it's kind of like everything's, everything that's a success that feels really good is always balanced by this kind of slap in the face of reality, you know, which is, which is kind of like, uh, it's kind of good in a way, you know, I've, I've, I've always, people are always kind of like, why are you so, mellow and sort of grounded I'm, maybe i'm speaking out of term maybe somebody else might have a completely different opinion no of that's my but, exact opinion of you it's exactly <laughs> mellow, grounded and... yeah and that's totally i think it's always just a kind of constant balancing act of like everything's going amazing oh you know not, not and it's once in a while a good sort of like uh, a little lesson in there to make sure you don't get too ahead of yourself you know what i mean
what, what point do you sign to, uh, or what, at what point does a major get involved? I mean, what, at what point do you go from independent band to major label band? How does that transition happen? Well, that's really interesting because the band was so, like, we were so, like, ballsy in that we kind of, um, we were really trying to get internationally signed. Like, we knew that we had kind of cultivated an audience in Canada. We were, you know, doing okay as an independent artist. And we thought, like, we could probably, you know, we wanted to see what more was out there. We had sort of visions of New York City and Los Angeles and London and Tokyo. Like, we were, like, always <laughs> sort of shooting bigger, you know. And we did manage to get signed to Mercury Records out of New York City. And that's a long story, too, because we it, it sort of came through a few different people who are interested in the band and this person's interested in the band and all of a sudden this person starts working for this. And, and the next thing you know, you know, we had management and a label out of, out of New York. And that would have been what precipitated the entire make a pest a pet. So, so it's interesting to, to backtrack a bit because we had already sort of, we had, we had moved to Vancouver in about 91 or 92. Um, after we, our first trip to Vancouver, we started playing out there a lot more. So we made that video and we would start doing trips out there. And then Bob Rock, the producer, he had done Metallica. He had done Motley Crue, bon, the cult, Bon Jovi. And he, he started to come around and see us. And he said, you know what? I like you guys. I want to record you guys. And we were like, wow, that's insane. Yeah. So for us, that was a huge, like a huge deal. I, I was currently at that time holding a, had an apartment in Calgary that, you know, my stuff was in, I was never there, but John, my brother was in Calgary as well. And I think the other brothers, uh, I don't think they were really kind of living anywhere. We just sort of lived on the road like gypsies really. <laughs> and then, uh, we just picked up and moved to Vancouver. We just sort of said, well, and that was really when we drew, drew that line in the sand between, you know, being, a touring five nights a week in a club, um, you know, because we'd sort of written our own ticket as far as that scene was starting to die, and which I kind of don't, I don't think we really were fully aware of that at the time. I think it was just sort of like the scene of like five nights a week in, in rooms and touring around Canada, the way we had come up. That wasn't a thing anymore. Uh, by the time we moved to Vancouver, that slowly went away. And I think we weren't aware of it because we just weren't participating in that scene anymore. We moved to Vancouver and decided, okay, we're going to be, uh, we're going to really focus on being a recording act and a, and an original act and, and go from there. And, and we recorded a bunch of material with Bob Rock. Uh, we were in the studio at Little Mountain Sound, which, you know, they had recorded Aerosmith and Molly Crew and all these, you know, major acts at the time. And Bob was you know, overseeing us recording in this little corner studio while Bruce Fairbairn's doing Get a Grip by Aerosmith. No way. And then and then shortly and around the same time, Bob was doing Keep the Faith by Bon Jovi, followed by the Motley Crue record with John Karabi. So there was a lot going on and we were like sort of like just again, we, we were just these kids from Saskatchewan with a big piece of straw hanging out of your mouth <laughs> and you're recording like in a, in a big leagues way. And we had management out of New York again that we'd met through the Bon Jovi crew. 
um, what's another story, but that didn't work out. But then somebody we knew attached us to another management company out of New York and we kept trying to get signed, but, um, nobody was biting. So in typical age of electric fashion, we just sort of went, well, fine, we'll put it out. We made the electric EP, which was five songs, maybe six. It's been a while since I've actually wrapped my head around that, but I'm pretty sure it was five. And those are the Bob Rock sessions. And those were pretty much the Bob Rock sessions, ugly, Spray Bomb, a bunch of those songs, um, Untitled. We did that in 93, and then two years later, we put out a full a full record that we recorded again ourselves at a friend's studio in Calgary. Huh. Again, we still weren't signed, but we did a full album that was just called The Age of Electric. I, I call it the Untitled album because it doesn't have an album, or it doesn't have a title. But that we included Ugly, and we included uh, Untitled on that. Um, just cause we, we, we spent that, like we put out the ugly EP, we went out, we worked it hard and we got some traction with, with the ugly single and this and that. And we decided to put out this full length album. What we initially got, had gone in to record demos in Calgary. That's what it was. Let's record these new songs we have. And we recorded them and we liked them so much. We thought if we just attach ugly and untitled from the previous EP on here, because untitled, I think we were releasing as a, as a single as well. We did a video in Winnipeg. And, uh, yeah, we just put that out independently. Um, I think Universal was carrying it somehow, distributing it somehow. And that, the momentum off that, we had a single called Enya and, uh, loved Enya. Enya is one of my jams, man. Oh, thank you. It's a, it's, it's, it's so much fun to, to, to talk about this in like, when I'm thinking of it in like chronological order, it's so bizarre. Yeah, I can we, imagine. We drummed up an, up enough interest around that time that, you know, I think we were talking to a lot of different labels and we kind of, we were speaking to a lot of Canadian labels. I remember talking to a lot of different, all these guys that had become really familiar to us, guys we knew, A&R guys and whatnot would take us out and show us a good time. And, uh, but we were sort of always sort of set on trying to find some sort of U.S. Um, situation. And when Mercury out of the U.S. came forward, we decided, we, we asked in really sort of, naive but you know fortuitous in a very fortuitous way we said we want to keep canada independent we want that to be ours you guys can have the rest of the world you know what i mean like in terms of like you know we would distribute through universal in, in canada and the rest of the world is yours and they, i remember them distinctly saying something like yeah knock yourself out it's like canada is like smaller <laughs> than this smaller than the population of california or something i can't remember what their reasoning was and i was like okay so we we signed with with uh with with Mercury. We ended up making the make a pesta pet at Mushroom Studios in Vancouver, and enough time lagged that you know between the making of it to the actual finishing of it, they had changed presidents, which happens all the time in the music industry. And when a new president comes into the company, and it's sort of like it can often be a mass exodus of just get rid of all of this. We're starting from scratch and we were sort of just put in this holding position and and I think rather than, than being dropped, it was more a case of us just saying, look, we just want to put our record out in Canada because we have this independent clause in our thing to do so. And they let us, they let us put out our record in Canada and that was remote control, the remote control video and single and all that. Um, so basically we handed universal Canada, a record was completely paid for by another company Interesting. Yeah. And they only just put in the promo and video money and, and, and whatnot, maybe some tour support. I can't remember exactly. 
and that became, you know, that became the Make It Pestiped run, which was, you know, a gold record and, and the peak of our success before we finally just, you know, 10 years of it, I think we just sort of like had had enough as funny as it is. Cause in retrospect, we all kind of look at each other like, I don't know what the hell we were thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, it was the biggest record we had. And we all kind of looked at each other like, yeah, I'm good. You know? And then just sort of like, I think when you're young, you have a lot more of this sort of like, well, I'll just do it again. You know, I'll just start another band and we'll do it again. You don't really kind of take into account that, geez, it took us a long time to get to where we are. I don't know that, you know, you can just sort of pick up and go, I'll just do it again. Um, you know, and I, it's, it's hard to regret any of that. I mean, you know, the whole story is a whole chapter of things that happened before the age of electric sort of reconvened and around, you know, we finally sort of put out material around 2016 or 17. I can't remember what it was. And then did a run across the country. So, and you know, we still, I'm in contact today. It's Kurt's birthday. So it's like, you know, we're kind of constant in constant contact. It's, it's a very bizarre thing.
Yeah, I was at that show you guys did in Regina at the Exchange. It was fantastic, man. Crowd sold out, going nuts. You know, really, yeah. I mean, you, had, you know, you just like you said, you put out five songs in like the last twenty years, and people yeah. were still going off. You know. Well, it was funny too because it wasn't long after. I think that you know, had we, um, it's really weird to think about because had we just sort of said like, "Hey guys, Age of Electric's the mothership. Let's all go off and do other things for a minute," because obviously Limlifter was was doing really great. And, and Ryan was really scratching some itches that he, he just couldn't scratch in, in Age of Electric. And and Kurt was involved in that loosely, but he kind of, you know... And in a lot of ways, I think maybe had he not even gone in and, and been in The New Pornographers, which was so successful and, and went on for so long, maybe we would have sort of kind of at some point looked at each other and gone, hey, you want to go play? Um it was never really lost on me. I always knew that we would at some point get together. I mean, other than the fact that I went to the U S and, you know, with slash going around the world a hundred times and everything else, it's sort of like, I still felt like, you know, it was a, a good chance that the age of electric would find a reason or find a, a window in time to go, Hey, let's get together. Cause the weird thing was Ryan and I started writing together at, at some point before I moved to the States started some of the ideas that went on to be some of the pretty EP that we put out around 2017 so that some of these things we were kind of working on for a long time. Like we had little ideas started and, and, and Kurt would come in and he would say, this needs to be faster. And he'd play a drum pattern and, and he'd change something. And then you would, it was very piecemealed together because Ryan from Ryan's studio, I would come up and to Vancouver and we'd, put some ideas down and then I'd run away for another two years, you know, <laughs> and then it just sort of like slowly came together to the point that when, and I knew it would happen. I remember like, uh, uh, this, this guy came forward and he was just sort of like, what would it cost to get the age electric back together? And I go, you know, I'm like, I don't know. I go, you know, and he came at me with some, some casino at a Calgary with some crazy numbers. And I was like, oh. that sounds about right. You know, kind of like, <laughs> I remember reaching out to the guys like, you know, what do you think? And everybody sort of said, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, it wasn't really so much about we're going to, you know, make a bunch of money and get rich. It was more a case of like, here's a whole thing now. John lives in Toronto. I live in, in Las Vegas. The other two are in Vancouver. We got to get together and rehearse. And, and Ryan was pretty adamant about like, let's release this music. You know, we've been working on music. It's in all different states of unfinishedness so why don't we try and do something with that and i was like well yeah absolutely you know and it just sort of all kind of came together that way um the initial deal fell through which was you know uh that this guy had sort of proposed to put the band together but the fact that we were kind of already in in talks it didn't it wasn't that much trouble to make the lateral move to um putting together a, a different show and then that just sort of uh, ended up being the marquee club in 2000 16 i guess i'm not really quite sure when that was and um you know and then we found ourselves back on stage together and and sort of in each other's pockets for off and on for about a year or so and then you know but i nobody had any really long-term plans everybody had you know ryan's got a lot going on i got a lot going on and 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 the others have all this other stuff going on too so we just eventually sort of you know we knew like this little window of time says we can go from victoria out to Ontario, we really should have gone further because Age of Electric never made it to, to the eastern Canada. But we did it, and, you know, and it was really fun and it was really 
rewarding and really great to be doing it with these same four guys that, you know, we came out of Saskatchewan with pieces of straw out of our mouths. And then we were doing it as grown men who all had um, a lot of other things going on, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I kind of likened you guys in a way to kind of uh, West Coast, Western Canada Sloan, because he had four members who all kind of sang. I mean, yeah. all had identifiable personalities. And it's like, oh, that's my favorite. That's my favorite. Kind of a Beatles situation. So it's kind of interesting that you guys could all be back together and doing it again as a foursome. Yeah. And I think that we, you know, I think we we became more and more comfortable even as, you know, even now it's like, you know, trust me, it comes up all the time. I mean, this is 2019 and we first got together in 1989. That's 30 years ago. I mean, that's, that's not lost on me. I'm, I'm big (laughs) on like anniversary things. So, you know, it's, it's very bizarre to really kind of take a moment. And I just posted a picture the other day. It was odd because Kurt Dahl sent me a handful of these photos that he'd found and literally took a, you know, like, like actual photos and took pictures of the photos with his phone and then sent them to me. And I was like, God, it just seems like yesterday. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was really, it was really fascinating. And I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's like, you know, it's it's the cliche of saying it feels like it was yesterday, but it feels like it was a thousand years ago at the same time. And if we can backtrack a little bit, you had mentioned earlier that like the U.S. and you had big ideas for like, you know, global domination to put it in grand terms. Sure. What what was the uh, experience like trying to tackle markets outside of Canada, like between the untitled record, the age of electric record and the pest of pet? What was that kind of experience like? We didn't get really a whole lot of chance to do so. I mean, we mostly got our feet wet as far as the U.S. goes. We, you know, we played New York, we played CBGBs, we played um, uh, the Dragonfly in L.A. You know, we played a lot of legendary places, and 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 uh, a lot of that would have led to, you know, I think by if you know if in an alternate universe we would have put out another record, and that would have been the one that we would have really put a lot of focus into going to the U.S. and really grinding it out i mean the the thing about all of my heroes uh the canadian bands that i grew up on a lot of them remained huge in canada um it became difficult to be so successful in canada and then go down and play you know and have to kind of start from scratch in the u.s and that's true of any market i mean you can have a whole career going on in the u.s and then go to europe and start from scratch and it's not easy for everybody um there's no one's going to give it to you you got to get out there and work and, uh, that's kind of where, that's kind of where we, uh, you know, we never really had a full opportunity to do so. So I think that, you know, it would have been great. And I think that in retrospect, I think that Europe and England and all that would have been really good for us, but, um, we just never had the opportunity to get over there. You're saying that would have been on the third record had it existed, the big push on the third album. I would think so. I would think that, you know, we, uh, we just had that kind of. I think we had an audacity, the four of us together, that we never really had separately. Like, I mean, we sort of really boosted each other to be kind of like, let's go do this, let's go do that, let's go. And I think it was sort of like a lot of, when you're together and when you're coming up, there's a lot of us against the world. And then when you start to become successful, there's a bit more, things start to splinter a band, you know, where you really needed each other at one time. You start to, it seems like you need each other less and less because you're sort of more successful and people are telling you, you know, people are telling me, I don't need those guys. People are telling him he doesn't need you guys. And 
all that kind of stuff starts to really become a problem. Although in reality, I really loved, I'm, I was in retrospect, our biggest fan. Like I really think, you know, I, I really, I really wanted us to stay together and, and work out and, but like anything, it just sort of hits a wall and, and you pick up the pieces and you move on. That's just the way, the way it goes. You know what I mean? And that's sort of where, uh, you know, and we, and we all picked them up and, and moved on and everybody's doing great. You mentioned, um, Pesta Pet is kind of the peak of the band. What was the factors that kind of led you guys to explode in such a way? Like, was it like airplay on much music? Was it Canadian CanCon rules? Was it chart magazine? Things like Edgefest? I think it's it's a it's really a combination of all those things, which I think is is a is all built upon the idea of every single move we made from '89 to that point. Um, you know, just sort of constantly the the fact that we went in and recorded the cassette tape when no one knew who the hell we were, to all points in between, and just having the audacity to just keep playing and playing and going and going. I've always likened it to being like showing up at a at a nightclub or something where there's a doorman and you say, we want to come in. And he's kind of like, your names aren't on the list. And you just keep <laughs> showing up night after night, after night, after night, till they finally go, just go inside. You know what I mean? And that's really what the, what, what it felt like for us was just this constant, like just always going and just never, you're just super relentless about it. And that's the one thing about being young is you people, you know, someone could say you suck and you go, I'll show them, you know, you just have this sort of, tireless sort of energy to just keep to keep pounding and keep going and that's what really kept us together uh, around when we put out we put out remote control as as a single in 97 and we were lucky enough to be added to the bill of a bush show at maple leaf gardens it was bush with Farouk assault opening and then us opening for all of them i, re I remember that well because actually i think much music held a contest to get somebody, yeah, a fan or something backstage or to, to meet everybody. And yeah, I remember them promoting the heck out of that gig, man. Yeah, yeah. It was like, you know, it was a massive deal. I mean, Bush was huge at that time. The Baruch Assault was, you know, a buzz band at that time. And and uh, for us to be attached to that, it just sort of put us in this in this situation where we, you know, were mentioned the same breath as these bands. And I think that that was right around the time when we, we first started to see a real change in people's reaction to the band. You know, it's weird when you're in a band because I, I said to somebody the other day, it's like, you don't really understand what it's like playing music because it's kind of like you're famous since you're like 15 in a funny way. Like if you play in a band, people know you play music. People like, mm. like you because you're in a band and you kind of get away with murder. Um, and that's why most guys pick up a guitar in the first place is because you kind of, <laughs> you're just, you want people to, you know, to, uh, pay attention to you and to, uh, you know, respect you or whatever. And, you know, so, so you sort of feel like it's not fame, but it is this sort of like, even if it's like two people who think you're great, you know, it's like, then it's four people and then it's six to eight people and then it's 12. And then, you know, it's sort of, and, and it just sort of becomes sort of, it becomes normal in a way that you're just surrounded by people who like your music and appreciate what you do. And it doesn't mean there's not a ton of people who don't know who the hell you are and a ton of people who don't like what you do, you know, like you're always going to face those things. That's the reality of life. Um, but I remember around, you know, that sort of make a pesta pet that became like a whole next level of like, you know, there's girls outside the hotel, there's girls crashing in the hallways of our hotel, like outside our hotel rooms and stuff like that. And it was like really, 
it's really crazy. bizarre. Yeah, it was like really kind of like, you know, sort of Beatles Jr. shit, you know, <laughs> that you kind of, you just can't prepare for. So, you know, and I think luckily we were some, you know, even keeled Saskatchewan guys who didn't never took that very seriously. In fact, we kind of, it was the, the alternative nineties made it. So you weren't really allowed to be a rock star. You know, you weren't really supposed to be, you know, you weren't really supposed to be lavishly living that life because the nineties, you know, just wasn't done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Eighties, different story. Nineties, not so much. <laughs> yeah. I, the nineties, you were almost supposed to be ashamed of being famous. <laughs> yeah. In the eighties, yeah. you reveled in it, you know? Yeah. Speaking of Beatles-esque attention, uh, I was flipping through uh, my old stack of chart magazines in preparation for this interview, and I came across um, October 1997 issue. It's the top 10 sexiest Canadian musicians. Are you familiar with this? <laughs> I can only imagine. Number one is Edwin, right? Makes right, sense. Right. right. Looking all good with his prostitutes, man, sharp. Sure. Number two is the Kern Brothers, tied for number right. two. That's right, for both of us. That's so bizarre. I totally yes. forgot about that. I mean, that that magazine was really good to us. Like, they, they were really, for whatever reason, they, they, they had a thing called AOE Watch. Like, whenever there was something, it was like a, an ongoing article every month that would say what we were doing. And I was like, you know, it, it's not like you take it for granted. You just become, it becomes so normal that this is just the way things are. Um, and that's part of the thing when I think about the band splitting up. It was sort of like, it, it's a, it's an interesting thing to be. It's kind of like there's that period where the Age of Electric moved to Vancouver and this sort of prairie bar, bar scene died. We, we, we didn't even really notice it, you know? It was just sort of like it just went away. And then it was kind of like when the Age of Electric split up, it's sort of like the whole chart magazine and all those kind of things. I don't remember it being around much longer after that. I don't know. I, I It's sort of like... You're right. I mean, I, that's it all kind of seemed... That's kind of like what, one of the motivations I got into this whole you know, 90s can rock thing was like, it all just kind of seemed to stop at, you know, around the same time, just like no more edge fests, you know, much music slowed down, you know, chart magazine just seemed to go away. I mean, well, there was a minute there where we were having uh, around that time, like when you're the sort of the turn of the century kind of happening right, yeah. where I remember having a conversation with somebody and we were saying how just going down a list of whatever bands were on a, on a certain edge fest or on a certain run. And it was like, and Moist was gone, and the Matthew Good band was gone. It was just Matthew Good now. The Tea Party had split up for a while there. It just mm -hmm. seemed like every band on the list was no longer a thing. You know, I'm of the Earth was gone. Right. Watchmen were gone right after they yeah. made a record in 2000, and that was it for them. And it was just a bizarre like period where like all those bands that were so important just all went away. A lot of them have come back in some form or another now, which right, is pretty right. exciting. Exactly. But um. Yeah. Uh, but it was just weird. Like, it was just really bizarre how it just all kind of went away. And, and like I said, it was like, you know, if it was up to me, I'd be, you know, I, I, I would have happily stayed in Canada, you know, and, and, and continued to have a career up there. But, you know, when, when things kind of dry up, you follow your instincts to other opportunities. And that's when the U S just sort of presented itself to me, you know, I sort of, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll go try this for a while and see what happens. And, and for a while turned into, you know, a long time. <laughs> yeah. So so at no point you were thinking after Static and Stereo, you were thinking day job? At no point was that even entering your mind? Was always next thing? Well, I, you know, I always kind of, you know, try to pound forward. And I and the Static and Stereo thing was, you know, it's, it's, it's so funny to me now because in retrospect, I have so many people who just 
give me all this love for the static and stereo record. And we put so much into that and it was so such a very difficult birth that it um <laughs> that it was, you know, and it's specifically at a time where, you know, by the time we finally got it out, the downloading thing had happened and that had a great effect on things and and you know, we, we had this, you know, a song that was charting and, and doing really well, but we couldn't get, you know, it was just, you know, there wasn't uh, the, the infrastructure to really to help us out because people weren't buying records. And if they weren't buying records uh, internationally, it really affected a, a, an industry that was as small as the Canadian music industry. So so for us, it just became frustrating. And I got into producing bands for a while. And that's around when I recorded my Go Time solo record mm-hmm. in 2004. And that was really fun. And, and we really... Uh, had a blast doing that and you know it was really rewarding and then the next chapter was just kind of like you know a very slow migration to the u.s Yeah. 
I got one more question of in the, in the Wayback Machine, and then we'll we'll talk about what you what you got going here in the last ten or fifteen years. So sure. the final question about the Wayback question is this: You're the first person I think I've talked to who's been on a Big Shiny Tune CD. How does that whole thing work? I mean, for people who, like myself, who those CDs are like a like a pivotal part in our lives, kind of break down what was it like to be actually on the record. It's funny too, because in retrospect, I don't remember being quite as tuned in to how important it was. You know what I mean? Right. I don't know if you know who Kevin Churko is. Kevin Churko is a producer from Canada. Yeah, from Moose Jaw, right? Yeah, from Moose Jaw. He does um, Five Year Death Punch, In This Moment, Ozzy. Yeah. Um, he did like uh, Disturbed. He's done a lot of major things. So his son, Kane Churko, is also a producer. And he, he sort of hit me with that not one time we were talking. And he was saying how big the Big Shiny Tunes record was, you know, and, and Remote Control was on that. And I'm like, and, and you know, he sort of gave me this love about how big a deal that was. And I was like, wow, that's so crazy. I, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, cause for me, I was like, cause you know, you're, I was a grown man making music. So I, I didn't have that kind of like where the big shiny tunes records were actually a, a really major part of my record collection. Yeah. Um, it would just happen to be something we happened to be on and it, and it, uh, but it was, a. I think when, when you go back and talk about what sort of set up, make a pest of it to be so successful with chart magazine, much music, uh, that Toronto Maple, uh, Maple Leaf Garden show. And I think that uh, Big Shiny Tunes, I think that all kind of is part of the the same discussion of how the, all those things sort of added up to be what took us to the next level, I, I guess. You know, to me, it's to be, because when you look on the back of an album like that and you're included with all the other artists of the day, not only Canadian artists, but international artists, keep in mind, um, mm. that goes a long way. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's one of the things like that, like the the big shiny tunes being, you know, you're on you're on the same record that you know as Radiohead or you know no yeah. Doubt or whatever, and then totally. you're playing Edge Fest with Green Day and Foo Fighters. I mean, it just kind of for the first time in in my life, anyways, like Canadian bands were on the same level. It's not like you're just a Canadian band. You're like you're fucking the same. You know what I mean? Yeah, and often bands, you know, like say Green Day or 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 Foo Fighters would be on a bill like that, and someone like the, our lady peace or tea party would be closing that show. It was like, you know, it would be like yeah. a headliner. So yeah, it was, a, it was, a, it was such an exciting time to be in music and to be playing shoulder to shoulder. And, and we were all pretty supportive of each other. Like I'm still really good friends with the tea party. You know, I, I try to always really support all those bands in the, in the same way that the new project took that I do supports a different era of Canadian music. It's sort of, I've always been very supportive of, of, of Canadian music. And it's funny to be, living in the u.s and be so removed from it because i talk to friends and they go oh i went down and saw this band last night and we did this and there and i'm like who the hell's that like i don't even know <laughs> because because it's just it's canadian and you and you and canada has such a specific in the same way that if i talk to a friend from say sweden or something like that they would be talking about some band over there that's really great and i'd be like okay i've never heard of them you know yeah. so it's it's what i always loved about canada is the fact that and I think what the celebration of something like Tuke is, is the fact that it's, you know, uh, very specifically Canadian music. Tuke is fantastic. I mean, you guys just released your second record not too long ago. Yeah. I'm a little upset that The Kid Is Hot Tonight did not make the cut. It's <laughs> my all-time favorite 80s Canadian jam. And you guys play it live, which is cool. But That is so on the list, dude. It's like constantly, <laughs> you wouldn't believe how hard it is to get like 10 to 12, 13 songs on a concise list that you know it's just so difficult to get everybody on the same page because everybody's got a different song that they think is the one that should be on the record you know 
Yeah, that was my question. That was my next question is how do you even balance it? Because you got four talented dudes who have a wealth of knowledge. But they, uh, how you pick? I mean, do you guys bring a list of 10 songs? You're just like, no, that one, that one. You know, and just. I think we just sort of like each wrote a list of songs and whichever one's sort of like correlated, we sort of went, though those are the obvious ones to do, you know. And I think they were relatively obvious. I don't think, I don't think, I think some of the songs like, some would have been like somebody thought was important and, and, or felt like that we should do it. Like, like me and Fitz sort of connected on a lot of things. And then me and Corey, we connected on a lot of things. And then Corey and Fitz would connect on a lot of things. And I'd be like, yeah, sure. You know, like I, I, I was never as, as familiar with something like Saga, although I know the song very well that we covered, but it was fascinating to see, um, you know, yeah, we have to do that song. That's a great song. It really showcases Corey's playing and all that kind of stuff too. And then, and then stuff like, there was a, a sort of pseudo obvious things like April Wine or even Lover Boy, like things that we thought, mm-hmm. you know, we have to include them because, you know, they're they're just so Canadian, you know. Um, but we also are, you know, that was kind of surprising to see how internationally well known those songs are. Like there's quite a few songs like Fantasy by Alda Nova we covered. Lots of Americans know that. I was surprised. Saga is huge in, in Europe, so that's a whole other thing. But I mean, a lot of it, we kind of like bands like Streetheart, the Queen City Kids, Harlequin. Um, those are bands like specifically from the prairies that we really kind of grew up on. Orphan was another one that we really felt like we love those songs. And I'd love to kind of I'd love for somebody in Australia or South America or Japan say, I love that song, you know, because right. it never would have reached them had we not done that. You know, what I mean, it's just like it, it, those songs never had that kind of reach. So. So it was very exciting. It's crazy. I mean, um, when I look up your name on Facebook, like I want to tag you in a post or whatever, there's like Todd Kearns Brazil, Todd Kearns Sweden, Todd Kearns Finland. Yeah, that is totally insane. Yeah, that 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 all sort of started to happen with Slash. Um, you know, the for our first trip to South America or whatever would be like, you know, Todd Kearns South America page. I'd like, <laughs> okay, you know, it just sort of, and then every time we'd hit a new place, there'd be a new page, and it's. You know, it's an amazing uh, support group, and and I really try to do my best to sort of maintain some sort of connection to these people because it's always really a lot easier when when we're doing the slash thing and and we're kind of out and about. But as soon as we sort of um, head into a period like now where Guns N' Roses and Alter Bridge are kind of doing their thing, and I'm doing a hundred other things, and and Brent and and Frank are doing other things too, it sort of creates this sort of this distance that you, you, you know, I constantly try to, to traverse in some, somewhere or another, just by kind of like keeping active on social media and whatnot, just to kind of let them know that I'm still alive and that we still care. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of slash, have you ever played him uh, any of the Tuke stuff or age of electric stuff? Does he even know that stuff exists? I mean, how does, I don't, I don't know what hanging out with slash is like, so you have to, <laughs> you have to help me out on that. We, I, he, it's funny cause I gave him a copy of this, of the Tuke CD when we first we first got together to start uh, writing for the most recent record, Living the Dream, with Slash, and he, he, when he I gave it to him as he was as he was leaving, and he, he drives away, and and then he texted me when he got home, and he goes, "Is that Fantasy by Alda Nova?" <laughs> <laughs> and I go, "Yeah, how do you know that song?" He goes, "I remember that song." I go, "Wow!" So yeah, he he was he was really. Um, complimentary about the about that record in fact like when we had to cover our guitar player frank had to go home his wife was having some health issues um thank god she's okay um we we had to cover that spot so 
Corey from Tuke ended up going out there, and it was Slash's suggestion. It's oh, funny. Really? He just sort of said, "What do you think? What do you think about getting uh, your, uh, your guitar player from Tuke?" And I said, <laughs> "Well, he would be perfect because he's, you know, he's that talented. He could learn the set really quickly and and all that." So that's what ended up happening. Yeah. And in, incidentally, the drummer when Brent Fitz, our drummer, ended up leaving with six shows to go. We ended up getting Shane from Tuke to come out. <laughs> finish the set there too so or finish the tour there too so we've had every member of Tuke has been on stage with slash which is pretty cool man and what yeah. do the canadian bands think of i mean have you talked to any like Loverboy guys yaldanova guys have you talked to them since you recorded their material and oh yeah yeah most most of them i, mean, I haven't talked to all of them but they're, they're all like really like really like jazzed about it like the honeymoon suite guys posted a, a thing about it and the Loverboy guys are always really good to us we 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 sort of know them pretty well one time we had a, a show at the railway in in vancouver and um a bunch of them all came well a lot of people came but paul dean came and we were going to get him up to play a song so it was kind of like put it towards the beginning of the set because paul's not going to hang around the whole show and i was like okay <laughs> i get it you know it's like he's paul dean he doesn't have to hang out here till right. you know, for four hours and then get up and play so we put it at like you know whatever it was somewhere in the first quarter of the set and then I, you know, he, I just sort of continued the set and I looked out and I noticed that Paul Dean was standing there, like basically front, oh, like maybe two, three, four people behind, but stood there the whole show watching no us play. The That's whole awesome. And I was like, after, after I was told he was not going to hang out. So just put him, I was like, I was, you know, so he's, he's been really good to us that way. And, you know, cause I, I don't know that anybody thinks we're trying to like take advantage of anything in any way. It, the whole thing is sort of like, we are just simply trying to, uh, pay homage and tribute to to the music that we grew up on and loved and, and in a lot of ways hoping that it, it spreads the love even further it's not only is it geographical i said this before it's not only geographical it's always it's also generational like i mean not only are we sort of there's tons of kids from saskatchewan who don't know the queen city kids just because it's like 30 years ago you know it's like it's right, not exactly yeah so so you know for us it was kind of a case of like being you know like you're kind of like a a curator of canadian classic rock or something you know <laughs> absolutely so you yeah. kind of turn people on to uh you know if you like this you might like that kind of thing so and i think that's started to happen a little bit i think people do actually kind of seek it out but i, I can't wait to uh, selfishly until you like slay some lee aaron because you got the pipes to do it man <laughs> you got the i would hear rebel angel by todd kearns because you could tear that up man that, it's funny that you say that because every once in a while that you know that kind of thing will come up because things like the Headpins or Toronto or, or Alanis Morissette have all come my way, and I've been like, okay, let's try it. You know. <laughs> so Lee Aaron, she's probably next. Why not? She's got a ton of great songs, a ton of hits. Absolutely. And, man, like I said, you got the pipes to pull it off, sir. I mean, oh, well, thank you. Do we'll not uh, be intimidated by that because you're one of the best <laughs> we got out there, man. Well, we'll see. I, we'll see how I do on, on Lee Aaron. Like, knock on wood. <laughs> So we'll uh, we'll uh, get you out uh, soon here. Now I have a playlist on Spotify that um, I'm trying to like I've currently I've currently picked all the songs and I'm trying to get everybody who I interview to right, replace my songs right. with their choices. Right now, what I mean, you only have one record on there. Sadly, you don't have the Untitled on there yet. But yeah, I don't know why I don't know what we were thinking on that. We really should have. Uh, I think we're kind of waiting for uh, a reason to put that up. You know, in the same sense that we. Uh, uh, you know, we waited for a 20th anniversary or whatever for um, uh, Make a Pest a Pet to be made available. So who knows? Maybe we'll find a reason to uh, get the uh, title record up there. Fair enough. But until then, can you give me two of the more Wells-known tracks off Pest a Pet and one of the deep cuts? 
Oh. Well, I would say probably for me it would be like, well, it's popular tracks would be Remote Control and I Don't Mind. Um, those are both classics. And then, uh, you know what? I would go with like Mad at the World. That's a good one. All right. We used to open our set back in the 90s with Mad at the World. Uh, I always thought it was a really cool 90s track, you know? Yeah, for sure. So anything else you got going on these days? I mean, anything else you want to let the people know about? Any kind of gigs coming up? Any? Uh, I know you got to have awesome merchandise on your website. Yeah, Damn It Where. I started Damn It Where. When I first came to the States, they started calling me Todd Damn It because no one knew who the hell Todd Kearns was. <laughs> 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 Which was kind of a refreshing thing. If you ever really want to take a new shot at life, just rebooting your whole career, just move somewhere where they don't know. You have no history of of of, of you know, good, bad, or indifferent, they don't really care. You're just some new person, and you kind of have to hold your own. So, you know, my friends started calling me Damn It, Todd Damn It, and then I just, Doc from my my Vegas band, Original Sin, made me a Damn It shirt, and people started asking, where can I get a Damn It shirt? And I go, well, this is the only one. <laughs> and slowly but surely, that turned into a thing, and that turned into another thing, and now it's uh, it's the whole thing. So Damn It Wear, if you look for it online, is my um merch company and we have all kinds of designs and it's it's really fun um original sin is my band here in las vegas uh, we started as a sin city sinners back in 2007 when i first started my vegas uh years and then vegas years you sound like elvis or something yeah the vegas years sort of yeah. like, it came down in October, like this next month, I will I will be down here for 13 years, which is fascinating. That's crazy. I came down in 2006, so it's it's bizarre to consider. Um, so 2007, uh, Brent Muscat and I started the Sin City Sinners, and through a series of now that time has passed so much, we call it the original sin, and we do that around here. Um, Took will be doing a bunch of stuff. Um, we sort of. Uh, Every now and again, kind of get up and, and do something. We have some stuff coming up in Canada that I can't really talk about. So, but I could talk to you about it offline, actually, after we're done. Okay, cool. <laughs> I'll, I'll hold that. I'll hold you to that. Yeah. And then Brent Fitz and I uh, from Slash's band, we're we're doing the Kiss cruise for the third year in a row, playing with Bruce Kulick, who was in Kiss uh, for 12 years during the non-makeup years, and that's coming up around um, Halloween. And then I play in a local show here in Vegas called Raiding the Rock Vault. Uh, if you're ever in Vegas, uh, I'm off and on through that show. Howard Lease from Heart, Hugh McDonald from Bon Jovi. That's just a bunch of dudes from a lot of different crazy bands, guys that played with Dio and a bunch of other people. And we just play classic rock songs here in Vegas, uh, currently at the Hard Rock. And just today they announced they're going to be over at the Rio as of 2020. So, yeah, I keep busy. I keep really, really busy. <laughs> like, I literally came from... Uh, uh, I just did a weekend run with the Raiding the Rock Vault out of town, came into town. I had a rehearsal with the original Sin today. Tomorrow I have rehearsals with the Bruce Kulick band over the next couple of days. So every day I always have something going on, often two things going on. So I like to keep busy. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, chat with me for an hour or so, man. It's been fucking awesome, dude. My pleasure, my pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today on Raven Drool. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can do so in a variety of ways. First, you can go to patreon.com slash ravedrool, become a patron, get access to deleted audio, get advanced notes of the guests, and get a chance to submit questions to those guests for an exclusive Patreon Q&A. 
Visit redbubble.com, search Rave Drool. You can buy various goods with the Raven Drool podcast logo on it. Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to this. And if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more Naughty's Can Rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. And lastly, if you're looking for music, we have an official playlist on Apple and Spotify. Currently, it's curated by myself with tracks that I've selected, but as you heard during today's episode, eventually, it'll be curated by the guests themselves. Until next time, friends, take care.